up to six of the nine justices on the Supreme Court were willing to think about a shrinking of minority voting rights. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about Merrill v. Milligan, a recent case on redistricting in Alabama. Last month, a lower court ruled the state's new congressional map most likely violated the Voting Rights Act and ordered officials to draw a new one. The map in question concentrated the state's black voters into one district through gerrymandering. And even though primaries are still months away, the Supreme Court has ruled there's no time to redraw the maps and that Alabama will have to proceed with the voting districts as they stand today. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have put our rights on indefinite hold, like Delta Airlines, when I try to call about the flight voucher they owe me. (laughs) It's been a long weekend, folks. I'm Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon. Hey, hello, everyone. And Michael. Hey, everybody. So I was just having flashbacks to handling the situation. Trying to go somewhere, Peter? No, you're not. We are going to New Mexico, not to visit Michael, but we will be visiting Michael. Yeah. Uh, Not if Delta has something to say about it, you're not. (laughs) No, we booked it. The only question is, who's going to pay? I say Delta. (laughs) (laughs) Your preference. They say me, uh, so we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Today's case... Merrill v. Milligan. This is a case from just a few weeks ago about voting rights in Alabama. Following the 2020 census, the Alabama legislature redrew its congressional map. And because this country is a fake democracy, they (laughs) gerrymandered the shit out of that map, of course. (laughs) That's right. right. Specifically, (laughs) they packed as many black voters as they could into one district and then split up the other clusters of black voters across multiple districts, essentially resulting in there being only one Democratic majority district, when, if done fairly, there would be more. Yes. And the result, of course, is that the votes of black voters statewide were diluted. The Alabama NAACP and others sued under the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting, And the district court agreed with them, saying that this was, in fact, a violation of the Voting Rights Act and ordering Alabama to redraw the map before this year's election. Alabama then appealed up to the Supreme Court, asking that the lower court's order be frozen so that they did not have to redraw the map and could go ahead with the election. And the court... They said, all right. Yeah. (laughs) You do you, Alabama. They're cool with it. (laughs) We're all good. So, Ree, you want to dive in a little bit? Yeah, sure. Before we dive in, I just want to say that we talked in detail about gerrymandering in our episode on Rousseau v. Common Cause. That was published back in October 2020. So if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen for more on gerrymandering, how it works, the advanced technology used to achieve gerrymandering, and how the Supreme Court thinks this is all fine. So to be clear, though, gerrymandering is the process by which 
you know, usually state election officials carve up voting districts in order to favor one party over another. So they manipulate voting maps based on demographic factors like race, wealth, and past voting behavior to group just the right number of the preferred party voters into each voting district to gain a majority there. And then they dilute the votes of the non-preferred party voters by spreading them kind of as thinly as possible throughout the rest of the voting districts. In the Rousseau episode, we talked about the term packing and cracking, which describes exactly what the state of Alabama did in this case. So note, first of all, that the state of Alabama's population is about 27 percent black. Most black people in Alabama live in the urban center of the state. So imagine if you divided the state like horizontally in thirds, roughly that middle third is where the black population of Alabama is concentrated. So Alabama has a total of seven voting districts in the state. And even though the mapmakers could have abided by what the Supreme Court calls traditional districting principles, for example, they could, you know, still be protecting incumbents. They could keep together existing communities of interest. They could have abided by those traditional districting principles and created two districts, two of the seven, where the majority of the population is black Instead of doing that, they packed almost one third of the black population of the whole state into one district, creating just one district where the majority population is black. For the rest of the black population in the state, the map makers cracked those communities across the rest of the voting districts, which utterly obliterates that population's influence in elections by totally diluting their votes. So to explain it with numbers, the resulting stats here, kind of, under this voting district plan, Alabama's 27 percent black population has meaningful influence over just 14 percent of the congressional seats in that state. And while 92 percent of the state's white population resides in a majority white district under this voting plan, less than one third of the black population lives in a majority black district. Yeah. And one very sort of simple way to think about these numbers, 27 percent and 14 percent or whatever, is that roughly, if not nearly exactly, two out of every seven Alabama citizens are black, but under this map, only one out of seven Alabama representatives will be elected by black voters. Right, mm -hmm. right. Yes, really good way to put it. So it essentially cuts their political power in half. In half, yes. Yeah, so the plaintiffs Peter mentioned, the NAACP in Alabama and others, they brought a lawsuit under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act saying that this is a racist use of gerrymandering and it cannot be the way Alabama divides its voting districts. The district court agreed with the plaintiffs, and we should underscore, highlight here, that the district court is a three-judge panel in Alabama made up of one Clinton appointee and two Trump appointees. This was a district court judgment that came from Republican nominated and appointed judges. Yeah. And the district court decision said that all of the evidence that the plaintiffs showed compels the conclusion that the districting plan not only violates the Voting Rights Act, but they said it wasn't even a close call. Like this is clearly right. an egregious violation of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Right. So the lower court comes to that conclusion and they order Alabama to redraw their districts to make them less racist. Alabama goes to the Supreme Court asking for a... <laughs> Alabama says, we are not going to be less racist. Are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's our whole thing. 
<laughs> so Alabama goes to the Supreme Court asking for a stay of the lower court's order. Important to note because the issue the court is addressing here is not whether the map violates the Voting Rights Act, but whether Alabama should have to redraw the map before the election. Right. Right now. Right. Mm-hmm. So the court says, hey, we know the district court said that the congressional map is illegal and racist, but let's sort that out later. In the meantime, you don't have to redraw the map. You can have your racist election. Yeah, go ahead and do the racist voting thing. And Alabama's like, great. That's all we wanted to do was a racist election. (laughs) Yes. Now, there's no majority opinion here because this is a shadow docket decision, right? It's a procedural matter. Instead, there are just a couple of lines saying that the lower court's Order is stayed, and therefore Alabama can proceed with its racist election. Uh, Kagan files an angry dissent. Roberts files a very technical dissent. And Kavanaugh files a concurring opinion that is essentially just a response to Kagan. And he's joined only by Sam Alito. Losers. So really the only evidence of the majority rationale is in Kavanaugh's concurrence. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's discuss and... Frankly, it's pretty simple in my view. The Voting Rights Act prevents discrimination in voting, which includes racially discriminatory gerrymanders. The lower court, which again includes two Trump-appointed judges, found the Alabama district map to violate the Voting Rights Act, told them to draw a new one. The Supreme Court doesn't say that the lower court is wrong, but it stays their order anyway. So essentially, the holding here is, sure, the Alabama map is probably illegal, but we're going to allow the election to proceed with that map anyway. The primary reason cited by Kavanaugh is what's called the Purcell Principle. Mm -hmm. Michael, I'll let you handle the Purcell Principle. (laughs) All right. So Purcell v. uh, Gonzalez. This is a case from like 2005, 2006, a pretty small decision. It was unanimous. It was per curiam. Um, It was, I believe, also a shadow docket case, uh, not a very long opinion. And it was about a voter ID law in Arizona that had been passed by a referendum. And it had this weird procedural history where like, the district court said the voter ID law was okay without a decision, without any fact-finding. And then the Mm -hmm. appeals court reversed the district court also without an opinion. And odd case, odd case. But Regardless, the Supreme Court, because of this weird procedural history, gets a little more into the merits and the fact-finding than it usually would in discussing the case, and comes to this conclusion that, like, look, even if this voter ID law is unconstitutional, and we doubt that is the case, but even if it is, we're way too close to the election. It's only weeks away to be making big changes, right? Right. Like That will lead to confusion, voter confusion, which could lead to voter disenfranchisement here. Right. Right. And to give a little more color here, the Ninth Circuit had basically stayed the law saying, so, okay, it's not going to be implemented. Right. And then they put like a briefing schedule that started after the election. So they were basically without any determination on the facts saying this law won't apply for this election. Right. And and so this Purcell principle, whatever you might think of voter ID laws and whether or not you even agree with this this rule, is reasonable, right? We don't want to confuse voters a few weeks before the election because some might just be like, I don't know, I'm staying home, 
right? Or right, end up at the right. wrong polling place or whatever. Here's the thing, though. There's no confusion in this case. Right. What would a voter be confused about? They don't even have a district yet. Right. <laughs> right. And, you know, changing their district isn't a big deal because they're going to be getting fucking flyers from candidates. They're going to be getting information telling them where their polling location is weeks, if not, you know, months in advance of this election, which, by the way, the general election is nine months away. Right. We're not talking about a last minute switch in the law here. Right. And the primary is what, in May, right? Yeah. The primaries in May, absentee voting for the primary starts like, I think, March 30th or something like that. But Mm -hmm. even that was like a good full two plus months after the district court put down its rule. Right. So like Kavanaugh pulls like a sneaky move, right? He says Purcell's not like ironclad. And you can overcome this presumption of not changing laws if you follow this test I just completely made up precisely for this case so that this case will fail my test. And one of those rules is, he says, you can only require changes if they are at least feasible before the election without significant cost, confusion, or hardship. Okay. Now, Purcell says nothing about cost. It says nothing about hardship. And the only confusion right. it's concerned with is voter confusion. Right. But Kavanaugh says, look, this can't pass this test because it would be really expensive and really hard for Alabama to fix their racist maps. And the voters might not be confused, but the candidates would be really confused. They wouldn't know what primary they're running in. And that's really hard on the candidates. And so it's like... <laughs> Who fucking cares? (laughs) (laughs) But also, isn't it like, so Kagan has like a dissent that I think is pretty good, but also sort of like boring in a Kagan way. But there is one part where it bangs, where she she points out something that I didn't really encounter until her dissent. She says, well, it only took them a week to draw this map in the first place. (laughs) How hard could it be? So so right, exactly. How hard can it be to redraw it? Also, for the record, you could draw a fair map in 10 minutes, yeah. right? I right. mean, you could just chop it up, right? If you, if you really wanted to just do a no look it, you know, exactly. <laughs> just just chop it into seven yeah. pieces. The plaintiffs provided 11 maps they thought were fair. Mm-hmm. The state could just adopt. Right? That's what I was just about to say. Like, not only did this racist map come out of whole cloth, like, in a week, right? Right. The plaintiffs provided many alternative non-racist maps that they made on their own, right? Which yeah. showed that, again... Two majority black districts could have been created in Alabama and still abided by the principles that the state of Alabama said that they were abiding by when they created these maps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so my opinion is if a state is disenfranchising its minority (laughs) residents, then, you know, maybe they should have to pay a lot of money and have to work late hours to fix that. Maybe it's okay if candidates who hoped to benefit from racist maps are in limbo for a little while before they find out if they really do get to like ride a racist wave or if they have to really compete on an even playing field. Like, I don't give a shit. Right. Why should anybody right. give a shit? I don't think the Constitution gives a shit. That's for sure. Right. And, and I don't think that's inconsistent with Purcell. And another thing that jumped out to me reading Purcell was like, like I said, they got into the merits a little bit and it was about this voter ID stuff. And you could say this is all bad faith bullshit when it comes to voter ID. But one thing the majority said is that like voter ID laws are important because even if there isn't actually fraud, if people think there's fraud, 
if they feel like their vote is being diluted or made meaningless by fraudulent votes, they might disenfranchise themselves. Right. And that that's a concern. Mm-hmm. And so just uh, imagine here an opinion where you're like, hey, all your voters being packed into one district and the rest of them being cracked amongst the others. That might make black voters feel disenfranchised. Absolutely. That might make them mm-hmm. not show up at the polls. That might, in fact, disenfranchise them, not just make them feel that way, right? Like, so the, the yeah. very concerns animating Purcell, both on the merits and on the pragmatic aspects, point the other way in this case. Yeah. They point towards yeah. enfranchising black residents and making the state work to ensure that happens. It's offensive bullshit that he pulls here. It's total nonsense. Yeah. So what popped out to me is, you know, the past couple of years in these voting rights cases, the court's been leaning on Purcell, Mm -hmm. right? They've been saying, well, you can't alter the election rules too close to the election. That's the Purcell principle. And it's just, it's an example of how formalism creates like the aura of rules and structure. So again, Purcell was a case where the Ninth Circuit halted the implementation of a voter ID law essentially during the election, Yeah, meaning they said, well, look, we'll figure out whether this law is legal after the election. In the meantime, you can't enforce it. Right. And they provide no written explanation, no reasoning. They just halt the law. And the Supreme Court says, well, hey, that doesn't make a ton of sense. You can't just halt the implementation of a law without explanation while an election is still happening. And so from that very specific set of circumstances, you get the so-called Purcell principle that courts can't interfere with election rules too close to the election, at least not without any good reason. Right. Right. Completely made up, but not totally unreasonable. Sure. And then you see these other cases where the boundaries of that rule get stretched a bit, right, as the court starts to apply it in these different situations. It'll be farther from the election, maybe, like it is here, or... You know, the election rule that's being altered by a court is a little bit different. Each case takes one step farther away from the original circumstances in Purcell. But to a casual observer, it still makes sense because each case becomes a justification for each subsequent case, right? First, this rule's made up, and then you have, like, one case that follows that rule and another case that follows the rule, and all of a sudden it starts to look like a real rule, right? A real line of jurisprudence. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, imagine a case that says... You have to stand at least two feet away from a fence at all times, right? And then there's a case about a guy standing three feet away. And the court says, well, if the principle is you can't stand too close. So if two feet's too close, makes sense that three feet is too, right? Mm -hmm. Then the next case is four feet. And they're like, well, if three feet's too close, right? On and on (laughs) and on until all of a sudden the rule is 20 feet or whatever, right? Yeah, Um, right. Each case was built on the logic of the prior case. But at the end, you're very far from the original principle. Mm -hmm. And so what started here as you cannot strike down an election rule without explanation in the middle of an election is suddenly you can't ask Alabama to redraw its congressional map several months before the election starts just because it violates the Voting Rights Act. Right. (laughs) But the court is imagining that it's adhering to the same principle in both cases. Yeah, exactly. This is how formalists work. Right. They present themselves as following these rules. But if you start to peel back the layers, the rules aren't really there. Right. They have simply created the illusion of rules. And the the fundamental irony is they've done a complete 180. Right. They're doing exactly what the Ninth Circuit did in Purcell. The Ninth Circuit struck down a voter ID law without providing an explanation and said, we'll address whether it's legal after the election. Here, the court is preventing the enforcement of the Voting Rights Act 
without written explanation and saying mm-hmm. we'll address it after the election. Exactly. Exact same thing. Yeah. Exact yeah. same yes. thing. So not only does their rationale bear no real resemblance to Purcell, they've actually violated the principle that they claim to be upholding in Purcell. Right. Right. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's it's truly... We're so fucked. <laughs> 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 yeah, there's something about these voting rights cases, man. It just fucking gets me. Like, yeah. I really feel like part of taking care of your mental health nowadays is just like prepare to not really live in a democracy mentally. Right. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. Prepare uh-huh. yourself to for this stuff to just not work at all. And for the rhetoric of democracy to completely fall by the wayside. You need to get ready. Peter's previewing the second half of this episode. (laughs) Get excited. (laughs) Um, This feels like a good time to take a break. Okay, we are back. Okay. So there's some other, you know, bad stuff going on here, which is that this is essentially a license for the states to basically delay as long as possible so that they can issue a map. That's really unconstitutional, but oh, too late to do anything about it. Yes. And that's that's like not an exaggeration. Kavanaugh even says in his concurrence that states can change the rules close to the election, even if judges cannot. And so, like, for one thing, I don't think that comports with Purcell, which again was very concerned with voter disenfranchisement. Yeah. Right? yeah. But the other thing is that, yeah, it basically green lights for the states. Like The district court here moved extremely fast, and the plaintiffs filed this case like within hours of the maps being released. So this went like almost as fast as legally possible, Mm -hmm. and the court is still saying it wasn't fast enough. And that, yeah, that's basically just telling the states, look, go ahead. You get one free election with right. unconstitutional yep. maps, at least one free election with unconstitutional yeah. maps. It's it's an awful awful incentive structure. Even if the the Supreme Court next year says you have to fix this map, they can just fix it right before the next election and do another racist one. Bang, same principle. Yeah. yeah. And then again. Right. Yeah. Why not under this reasoning? Exactly. Every election. Oh, sorry, too late. <laughs> Here's a new racist map. Sorry. <laughs> right. <Yeah>. Foiled again. <laughs> So we should also talk about kind of efforts at killing the franchise across the country, right? This isn't just a problem with Alabama. Democrats and Republicans, both parties do gerrymander, but, you know, Republicans especially are on a wave of voter disenfranchisement and diluting the vote in many different ways, using many different methods, we should say. Mm -hmm. One example, in Wisconsin, the state GOP there is currently trying to jail election officials in an effort to prove that the election was stolen from Trump. The state assembly speaker in Wisconsin is using about $700,000 in taxpayer money to fund an investigation into the 2020 election. This is spearheaded by a former Supreme Court of Wisconsin justice. And that justice has subpoenaed a bunch of election officials and other city officials and asked to interview them behind closed doors. They've basically refused to do so. You know, we'll be interviewed out in the open in front of a legislative committee. And do you even have this power to make us interview behind closed doors? Fuck off, right? right? But the justice has responded, this former justice has responded by asking a judge to jail these people, to put them in jail. Mm-hmm. This includes yeah. the mayors of Madison, Green Bay, Racine. And so 
to be clear, the question of whether like Wisconsin's 2020 presidential election was fraudulent has been asked and answered, of course, many times over with audits, investigations, all sorts of stuff. Right. And the GOP there just doesn't like the answers they've been getting. So they keep inventing new reasons to continue their investigations. And they're now talking about jailing politicians and election officials who aren't playing along with like their silly charade. So, you know, Again, this is straight up fascism. We say it a lot on the podcast, but jailing politicians and election officials who aren't talking to you in your sham investigation is fascism. That's authoritarianism. Turning to Arkansas, there's another similar Voting Rights Act case, similar to this case, going on right now that alleges that Arkansas engaged in a similar racial gerrymander. In that case, a Trump judge held that the plaintiffs who were the NAACP of Arkansas and others, that they don't have standing to challenge the maps. He said there's no private right of action in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And just want to highlight, this is a pretty radical argument that's never won in court before, even though like Gorsuch and Thomas have both signaled in concurrences a few years ago that they are sympathetic to this kind of argument. Look, if this case is upheld, it's basically the end of the Voting Rights Act, right? It basically means that all Voting Rights Act lawsuits would have to be brought by the Department of Justice. They can't be brought by independent groups like the NAACP. And that would stretch the Civil Rights Division to the breaking point if you think about how many of these lawsuits have to be brought. The vast majority of Voting Rights Act lawsuits are brought currently by private parties. And look, you you say it's a radical argument, but it's more accurate to say that, like, it's just not the current law, right? That's right. Yes. When you say Gorsuch and Thomas have both signaled in concurrence that they're sympathetic to this argument, yeah. that's another way of saying that the majority wasn't, right? The majority of the exactly. Supreme Court did not buy this argument. And here we have a Trump judge saying, well, let me just toss this up to the Supreme Court and see what happens, right? Right. Fuck yeah. it. Right. Yeah, exactly. They've seemed pretty crazy lately. So yeah. let's push it. Yeah, let's the see. vibes are good. Let's toss it up. Yeah. Exactly. Shifting to Texas, you know, there's a new law with new stupid rules about mail-in ballots here in my home state. So if you're voting by mail, you have to apply for the mail-in ballot. And this new provision requires that you put either the last four digits of your social security number or your driver's license number on both the application for the ballot and your ballot once you send that in. But the rules require that you use the same number, like you either choose the last four digits of your social security number and you put that on both the application and your ballot or your driver's license number that you put that on both the application and the ballot. But people naturally just don't remember which one they chose on the application. Right. Right. I don't remember if I put the last four digits of my social security or if I use my driver's license number. I have both of those memorized. Right. But if they write the wrong one, then their ballot is rejected. Well, I'm sure that it hasn't impacted that many people, though. Right. Let's talk about that. So in El Paso, for example, where the majority of voters are Latina women who vote Democrat. So far in primary elections in El Paso, this has resulted in more than 40 percent of the mail-in ballots being rejected. Forty percent. How, dude? 
How? I saw it was 40% in Houston as well, in Harris County. Unreal. It's, yeah, it's just wild. Yeah. So, you know, just just want to kind of take us through a little survey across the country of how disenfranchisement is working right now. Right. Right. This case is just one piece of a broader Republican effort. Yes. Yeah. At ending American democracy. I know, like, Re, you mentioned that Democrats do this too, and you sort of have to say that, but like, fucking miss me with that shit. Right. If you just put this to a vote right now, Democrats and Republicans, who would get rid of gerrymandering by everyone nationwide? Every Democrat would vote for it, and every Republican Absolutely. would vote against it. I mean, there's just, yes. that's yeah. all there is to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a big step back and talk about like voting rights in America under the Supreme Court's jurisprudence. So in Reynolds v. Sims, the Supreme Court held that we must adhere to the principle of one person, one vote, right? This court hasn't explicitly overturned Reynolds because they don't have the balls to do that. But there's no way you can say with a straight face that that case still stands, right? Mm -hmm. In Rucho, like re-mentioned, the court said that while racial gerrymandering is illegal, political gerrymandering is allowed, right? So a party can endeavor to intentionally dilute the vote of certain citizens based on their party affiliation. And that is fine, according to the court. Right. No uh, equal protection issues there. No free speech violations there somehow. And the result has been this sort of race to the bottom, right? Republicans and Democrats are essentially engaged in a death spiral, each making their own states less democratic because... If you stop, you feel like you're going to lose, right? The other side's going to do it worse and you will lose your power in the House of Representatives. And again, not to say it's a problem on both sides in any meaningful sense. It's happening on both sides, but the actual problem lies on the right. So the basic question at 30,000 feet is what voting rights do states owe their citizens? is a person guaranteed a meaningful right to vote. Right. And the conservatives are steadily both at the jurisprudential level and in like Republican politics are steadily coalescing around answering that question with like, no, not really. Mm, right. Meh. Yeah. The plan is to revert to like the antebellum understanding of the franchise as something afforded to a favored slice of the population. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mentioned this in a voting rights episode last year, I think. But when conservatives talk about like states' rights, like states' rights to run their own elections, you have to keep in mind what they mean because they make it seem like they mean local democratic control. But in reality, they mean state governments, which are often extremely undemocratic Mm -hmm. and working to make themselves even less democratic, right? Yes. This map does not reflect the will of the state of Alabama unless you exclude... (laughs) At least every black person, right. uh, maybe every Democrat, right? It's not the will of Alabamans. It's the will of the Republican-controlled legislature, which specifically does not care about a huge chunk of its citizens. Exactly. Right. That's right. I think we're going to wrap up on a dust-up with the Harvard Law Review. Hmm. Yeah, a, d- a different sort of voting rights drama. <laughs> but before we get to that, I do want to say one more thing about this case, which is that we have skipped over a big piece of it, which is like this case called Gingles or Jingles. I don't know that there's a consensus on how that's pronounced. I listened to a podcast and like 
one person pronounced it gingles and one, per- one person pronounced it jingles. Jingles is funnier. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dingleberries. <laughs> and so jingles provides like sort of the test for how this section of the Voting Rights Act is interpreted. And, you know, there's all this stuff about, well, if the district court applied that test properly, then its decisions should stand, even if we want to revisit jingles and and blah, blah, blah. And what this signals about how they're going to treat that case. And I think if you go read a lot on academic blogs and Twitter and listen to academics talk about this case, that's what they're coalescing on as like important. And I think it's not important. I think like we did a whole episode on this case that I think was pretty comprehensive without mentioning it. And it is illustrative, illustrative, illustrative. It's a good illustration. like the specific type of pathology that like plagues law professors, which is like their inability to see the big picture uh, on this stuff and like mm-hmm. get lost in like the jurisprudential weeds. Like it doesn't, right? It, like the, the contours of the jingles first factor does not matter. It like doesn't. Right. So <laughs> speaking of uh, professor pathology, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we are coming off the tails of a, uh, a Twitter drama. Yeah. Harvard law review tweeted and linked to an article. And here's the tweet. Free and fair presidential elections are a cornerstone of American democracy. But are they required by the Constitution? (laughs) This note says no, arguing for state discretion to regulate how and whether presidential elections occur. (laughs) Arguing for state discretion. Yeah. Again, underline that. Arguing for state discretion to not even hold elections. Right. Right. Something that hasn't happened since 1876, by the way. So they link to a student note. Um, If you are on the Harvard Law Review, you can publish a note, including shortly after your graduation, which is essentially just an article, except it's worse than the average article because it's written by some dipshit kid. (laughs) And so what happened was like some people uh, retweeted this and said like, it's pretty fucked up, Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Wait a second. <laughs> I don't know that I like this. <laughs> I have questions about this. It doesn't make me feel good. There's a rising fascist movement in this country. I don't know if you've right. noticed. Yeah. Like a lot of people are looking for academic justifications for their anti-democratic tendencies and perhaps handing them those justifications is a, a bad right. move. Yes. You know, right. just uh, floating it. Now, Harvard keeps the authors of Student Notes Anonymous. So people were calling for the publication of his name. And by people, I mean like me. Uh, (laughs) Yes. I asked for it online because, you know, I felt like when you publish something like this, maybe you should have to attach your name to it. You know, I agree. All we really know is that he's either a current Harvard law student or a recent grad. And based on the content of his note, that he's some kind of sexual pervert. (laughs) So the Harvard Law Review is not exactly the tightest ship when it comes to preventing leaks. So his name is Alexander Gurin. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Yeah. Graduated Harvard Law last year, and he is a clerk on the Fifth Circuit. Well, well, well. Court of Appeals. Federal Court of Appeals. Actually, for one of the more liberal judges, apparently. Mm. But just incredible because, you know, a big part of the reaction, the pushback, to people being like, what's this fucking person's name? Like, who wrote this? Is like, you want to like dock some student? And it's like, actually, he's a federal clerk, which like- he's sitting in the literal halls of power. Right, right. right. 
if you're a recent Harvard Law grad now sitting on a circuit court of appeals, you are going up. You're getting more powerful, mm-hmm. right? Right. But even that aside, in a vacuum, a federal circuit court clerk is probably more on balance, more powerful than your average state legislator, for example. Mm-hmm. More powerful federal clerks, like the more influential federal clerks, are probably more powerful than lower court federal judges. I mean, this is not some nobody. Right. And this is not like some academic exercise, right? This is a fucking resume. This is an announcement to the Republican Party. Like, hey, next time you're in power and you're looking for a 30-something pencil-necked dipshit to give a lifetime appointment judgeship to, I am here to trot out the very worst shit uh, you could possibly come up. Give me an hour to clear my hard drives and I'll be in front of the Senate before you know it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I will say like I gave some serious thought to whether this kid's name should be revealed, whether that's ethical, how I feel about that, you know, whether that was appropriate for balls and strikes to do if they hadn't, whether it'd be appropriate for us to do, whether it's appropriate for us to amplify that by saying his name to a much wider audience because Peter and I are pseudonymous. But, you know, what Peter described is is why it's it's not really comparable. Like I'm some dipshit sitting in a fucking bedroom with my dogs on my lap talking into a mic. This kid is sitting in a federal court of appeals. Right. right. The one that has currently become the favorite of the right wing to bring all their crazy shit so that they can get favorable judges and favorable rulings before going up to the Supreme Court, writing decisions. Yes, and his platform is not only those decisions, but the Harvard Law Review. Right, right. One of the most influential legal journals in the country, if not the most. In the world. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I don't think it's comparable. Fuck this guy. Like, if he wants to help the propaganda effort for ending American democracy in the name of white supremacy, he should have to fucking put his name on it. Yeah. And if you don't think the Harvard Law Review should change its policy about unsigned notes, then they shouldn't fucking publish this. Right. Yep. I mean, I don't think they should publish it regardless, but they definitely shouldn't publish it anonymously. Right. It's ridiculous. It's irresponsible. It's dangerous. Fuck that. Fuck this guy. Yeah. I, I don't understand why we have to entertain the idea that like, Every fucking thought that some student has must be published by Harvard Law Review, right? And I I made a joke, like, I could write a constitutional justification for genocide, right? The argument that genocide, if it fits certain contours, is constitutional. You could write that piece. Sure. And if I did, and it was published by Harvard, would you read that and think, well, this is a fascinating thought exercise? (laughs) Or would you think... What the fuck are you doing? Right. Why would anyone ever want to make this case? Why would you risk even the slightest chance of giving ammunition to someone who wanted to use it for the purposes of violence and murder or whatever? Right. But you could write that article. Sure. Right. And every defense that's been trotted out for this piece could be trotted out for that one, too. Right. Yeah. And I think he should thank us because 
they're going to fucking march him yeah. right up the ladder uh, on the right. There's no such thing as being canceled right. on the right. You know, yeah. he's going to be talking to Tucker Carlson in no time <laughs> and he can write me a personal letter of thanks <laughs> because that fucking tweet had no likes before I got to it. OK, you're welcome, Alex. Yeah. And so we should talk about the law professor response, the law Twitter response yes. to any criticism of this note in the Harvard Law Review. I feel like there's like kind of two categories of law professor responses. One was, this person's name does not need to be published. You can engage with the ideas without knowing who the author is. Okay, so there's that stupid fucking category. And then the other category is, well, actually, what this student or recent grad is pointing out is a problem, actually, in the Constitution and and, an Mm -hmm. oversight, if you will. And he's raising the alarm. And now we know (laughs) that there's a major problem in the Constitution having to do with voting. And we should thank him. Oh, my God. How do you think they were able to type that with only one hand? While the other one was <laughs> just stuck in their pants. <laughs> That's a lot of hand-eye coordination. There's something so offensive about like, well, you're not engaging with his ideas. Right. Like, well, actually, I engaged with it real quick, reached a conclusion, and then moved on to the only remaining question, which was who wrote it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> yes. But like also, you know, a lot of them were just like accusing people of not reading it. And it's like, OK, I so first of all, I did read it. And it's not good. You know, it's not good. It's poorly reasoned. It assumes most of its conclusions, glosses over several reasonable liberal interpretations of the amendments that do reference voting rights, which is crucial to the thesis. Uh, It does not mention Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, which penalizes states for restricting the franchise and is also crucial to the thesis. So, yeah, you know, the article is middling trash, you know. But more than that, this is not some kid trying to, like, describe to you what the Constitution means. It's a federal court clerk trying to argue normatively for what he thinks the Constitution should mean. Right. And his vision of it is disgusting fascist bullshit. So, like, several people are making arguments that people are just trying to cancel this kid and not engage with the ideas. And sorry, that's that's just, just wrong. Absolute bullshit. Yeah. Alex, I don't want to cancel <laughs> you, buddy. I just want to talk, okay? I was going to say, I don't want to cancel you. I just want to meet you in a dark alley. We just want to get you help, Alex. A particularly good example of some of these pathologies Peter and Marie are describing was this professor, Josh Chaffetz, who said, everyone's treating the Harvard Law Review note as a conservative defense of the position it takes. I prefer to read it as a radical critique of our juristocratic constitutional order. Whoa. It's a weird way to read it. Which is like saying, hey, this piece of shit that's awful that you're criticizing, what if you pretended like it was a beautiful piece of pie? <laughs> right. Wouldn't you love right. to eat it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, fuck you. <laughs> it's, it's garbage. Yeah. And I know it's garbage. And this is like the worst sort of like, it's not even treating your ideological opponent with good faith. It's like, Giving the best possible strained reading of anything they say. Yeah. And it's fuck off. Like everybody knows what's going on here and you have to be a moron to not. And I don't think Josh Chaffetz is a moron. No. I don't. And you know, he's supposed to be one of the good ones. And this is a problem we talked about recently when we were, we did a symposium on legal pedagogy at UVA. And we talked a lot about how like even professors who will say judges are politicians and the Supreme Court 
engages in politics, like still don't get it. And I think this is a good example. Like, yeah, if your theory of politics sucks, it doesn't matter if you right. get it right. Like, if you can't identify this quite easily as propaganda, right, designed to further this kid's career on the right and designed to help give cover to the current anti-democratic movement coming out of the Republican Party, then like your theory of politics is fucking garbage. Exactly. It is. Right. And you don't have anything useful to say about it. Right. Like you don't. Yeah. Like if you can't clock that, right. you don't have anything useful to say. And, and like, I'm sorry. He's calling it a radical critique of our juristocratic constitutional order. First of all, I take offense because we are the only mainstream radical critique of our juristocratic constitutional order. That's right. Uh, and that's offensive to me personally. But more importantly, is this really because it seems to me like the sort of standard modern conservative approach of you strip away all the jurisprudence until you're left with an antiquated framework that you like. Right, exactly. Right? I mean, is that not yeah. what they're doing with like non-delegation too? It's what they're doing in every fucking field. I hate this framing too. I prefer to read it as whatever I want to read it as. Fuck your preference, dude. Right, that's not what it is. Like, who does that serve yeah. to change it, to whitewash it, right? Who are you keeping yeah. for? The other thing I wanted to say was like, yeah, we've been critical of the federal constitution's protections of democracy and the right to vote in the yeah. past. But they're not entirely absent, like Peter said. The fucking 15th Amendment literally says the right to vote shall not be abridged. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a statement, right? Yeah. This stuff pisses me off from law professors when they say shit like this, like Traffitt's following up saying, maybe our constitution has interpreted actually doesn't require democracy because maybe it's a bad constitution as interpreted by who because right. if you want it to be useful right you should either be pointing this out for the fascist shit it is and the role it's playing in the conservative movement or you should be trying to build a counter jurisprudence for liberal judges to hopefully seize upon when they're in control, maybe built around the 14th and 15th amendments and talking about how there is something to work right. with in the right. Constitution. I mean, there's a reasonable argument yes. that right. voting rights are broadly protected under the Constitution, exactly. right? Right. And as long as that exists, right. then why would we ever go to the undemocratic, I mean, to call it undemocratic almost undersells it, but the anti-democratic right. framework that kids like this right. are pushing? Yeah. You know, I think there was one election in Colorado in 1876 after the ratification of the 15th Amendment that did not use the popular vote to select presidential electors. And then 150 years of uninterrupted popular vote. I think that's a good place to start right. for saying, yeah. This is what democracy requires. Right. This is right. what the Constitution right. requires, mm -hmm. right? This is yep. what the 14th and 15th Amendment yes. require. Yes. And we have the majority of American history, almost the entirety of American history, post the ratification of this amendment as evidence. Yes. And, and, you know, if you don't like it, fuck off. Because this is precisely what the right wing did with Heller and this right uh, of the people to bear arms not being abridged uh, in the Second Amendment, That's but with right. a lot less to work with. You know, yep. so like, go make yourself useful. Don't fucking defend some 25 year old fascist prick. Go do something worthwhile with your position. Like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, what is wrong with these guys? It pisses me off. They're yeah. just useless. Even the best ones, right. even the best professors are by and large useless. Yeah. And, you know, Michael, you mentioned that like we've been 
or at least we've we've talked in the past about how the right to vote in the Constitution is weak because it's not explicit, right? It's not mm-hmm. like in the Bill of Rights per se. But I will say this. I think when I started the podcast, and I don't remember exactly how I talked about this in early episodes, but I've been brought over to the position that voting rights are much more robust in the Constitution than I thought even a couple of years ago when I wasn't looking into it as much and I wasn't like mm-hmm. researching for the podcast every week. But they don't fucking talk about that shit in law school. It's presented the opposite way, right? As if right. democracy is sort of bestowed upon us, but not owed to us under the Constitution, right. right? And I just don't think that's right. I think that there is a very reasonable, grounded interpretation of the Constitution that involves a broad reading of voting rights. Yeah, you know, like the Constitution as interpreted by a century plus of old white dudes who didn't even think black people were full human beings. Who gives a shit right. how they interpreted the Constitution? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like, how do you interpret the Constitution? How do you want to interpret the Constitution? How do you think it should be interpreted? That is important. That is interesting. And that is fertile ground. And that's something you could be passing on to your students. Yes. Rather than this passive bullshit getting steamrolled by 25-year-old losers who've never been laid. They are failing their students. They're failing the country. I believe that. I'm sorry, but I, I I'm sorry because I, I like a lot of these guys. They they're smart and they do you know some good work, but they're just not up for the fight. And it's a fight. Yep. It's a fight that's happening in their institutions. Yep. It's a fight that's happening in their field of expertise. Yep. And and they don't think just it's not a fight. There for and it. they're not ready for it. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it, Michael. Next week, long requested episode, we're talking about Janie Thomas. Yes, 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 yes. yes. It will be a free episode because we're talking with Jane Mayer, who wrote a New Yorker piece about Ginny just a few weeks back. So we're going to be digging in, digging into the Ginny problem. (laughs) (laughs) Get pumped. (laughs) I am. (laughs) Follow us on Twitter at 54pod. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash 54pod, all spelled out. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. 5 to 4 is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our production manager is Persia Verlin. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Like, that guy looks like a virgin. If he's had sex, he had to pay for it. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>